Hello and welcome to Intelligence Talks, Knight Frank's property podcast. I'm Anna Ward. So Rishi Sunak has climbed down from a number of net zero policies lately. So Wednesday, 20th of September, he came out in a press conference and said he's prepared to give people a lot more time to replace gas boilers with heat pumps. The plan before that was to scrap gas boilers from 2035. He also said that landlords are no longer under pressure to upgrade their rental properties. So he scrapped the requirement for them to reach EPC grade C, the third highest energy efficiency rating, as soon as 2025. Of course, naturally, he announced all of this immediately after I'd already got my two latest podcast guests together to talk about net zero and property. So we spoke on the Friday before his conference on the 15th of September. However, as it turns out, our conversation was very on point. So the key topic being how much of a role should government be playing in setting these targets in the first place? And I was joined by Knight Frank's head of ESG research, Flora Harley, who has also just carried out a survey of 45 pan-European investors on their approach to net zero. And Barrett's technical and innovation director, Oliver Novakovic, who is testing new technology at the Energy 2.0 house in Manchester on preparing homes for climate change. Hi, Anna. Thanks for having me. Hi, I started out by asking Oliver a bit about this new lab in Manchester, and that's backed by $16 million in funding, and how he's stress-testing the homes of the future in these crazy climate conditions, literally creating the weather to see how they hold up. It's basically a big environmental chamber, which I've got our house in. And yeah, we can go from minus 20 degrees Celsius to plus 40, so so a Scandinavian winter with snow, if you want it, to a Saharan summer of 40 degrees within 48 hours. So if you think of what, what the climate's going to do in the next 50 to 100 years, we're, we're going to see maybe not minus 20s in, in most of the UK, but at least minus 5s and 10s. And we are going to, well, we've seen 40s, haven't we, for longer periods of time. And probably more important, we're going to see the extremes of that. So going from one to another as an extreme, which we've definitely seen this summer. We've had really cold spells followed by like heat waves followed by cold spells. So the project, we've put a zero carbon home in that environment because that's what we've got to build. And then we have basically thrown the climate at it uh, and the technologies. So how does an air source heat pump work when it's minus 15 degrees Celsius outside? Does it still work? I mean, does it? I mean, there's been a lot of scepticism around those. Does it still work? It does. And it has been for many years in Sweden where it gets to minus 20. But um, a lot of the times I'm just myth busting. People say, oh, air source heat pumps are really noisy. Because 20 years ago, I went to an air source heat pump and it was really noisy. And I say, okay, well, what car were you driving 20 years ago? And what technology did it have in it? Oh, God, it's really old technology. I said, well, it's that's the same with air source heat pumps. They're now very quiet. But you've got to take people and show that to them. You know, they don't believe you. No, and it's easy for something to get a bad rep, isn't it? We'll come on to that in a bit more detail in a second. Um, Flores, I wanted to ask you what investors this are looking at, so what they're weighing up when they're buying new property. And is their priority to really just focus on the greenest buildings only? Are they just avoiding anything that isn't up to scratch? There's definitely more of a focus on sort of ESG and the lens with which they look at properties. So when we ask by what ESG criteria do you assess assets for acquisition, 77% said they have a minimum environmental criteria. And then some are more focused on the sort of European side, have to look for EU taxonomy compliance or SFDR alignment. But 
On the flip side, in terms of when we ask them what they actually require in terms of new acquisitions and when they're considering buildings, there's going to be a growing level of ESG due diligence surrounding that. And we could potentially see it start to become as prevalent as sort of building surveys, maybe moving away from sort of the theoretical energy efficiency and EPCs as there's a big focus on how buildings are actually performing and rather than the potential energy efficiency. So nearly 70% of those surveyed said they want in-use data to understand what that actually means because that could not only play into the EU taxonomy compliance, but it's actually what occupiers are are going to care about and increasingly going to care about is how these buildings are actually performing, not how they could perform. Then on the sort of the other side is that future gazing and 61% are looking to acquire an EPC plus or pathway report, which can help them understand what it will take for them to comply with future regulation and what the capital expenditure and outlays may be required to reach those sort of regulatory minimums, as it were, as well as we've got many investors looking at CREM analysis, which again shows them how they can get to their net zero carbon and what that decarbonisation pathway looks like and sort of stranded asset dates and and many other sort of nuanced terms there. But um, there's a lot more uh, due diligence. But on, on your second point, I think it's really interesting finding from the survey is that there's definitely a demand for that minimum environmental criteria, particularly from core focused investors. But on the other side, we've got almost 60% saying they're looking to acquire poor ESG performing assets in order to refurbish them or reposition or redevelop. Yes, these are more value add focused investors, but there's definitely an appetite to do so. And our own Knight Frank data shows that in the first half of 2023 in central London, £2.1 billion was invested into offices for pure value add sort of plays, which is where capital expenditure is required to improve the building for future occupational standards. So it's definitely not just the green buildings. Okay, that's quite a mix. Yeah, exactly. There is that sort of desire to improve property efficiency across the board. And I think that's sort of helping the whole industry move towards those sort of net zero goals. And when you're talking about that, you know, they clearly want to understand how the building is operating currently. Is that difficult to go about? I mean, obviously, a lot of these properties are fully let out and so on. How do they carry that analysis out? I think that one is very tricky. And I think it's it's widely known across the industry. One of the, the biggest barriers to realising any goals and sort of reducing emissions is data collection. I know a lot of our, well, as I said earlier, 100% of those surveys said they're employing green leases. And the biggest clauses they're putting into those is the energy and water and waste sharing of the data. So as long as we can collect that data, which, which may be helped with the advancements in technologies and building management systems and all of those. Those sorts of things. Yeah, they're really looking to work with their occupiers to make sure they have their energy data. And we just, as an industry, are, are crying out for more data and hopefully we'll, we'll start to get there. But with the demand, you can at least hopefully see supply catch up in terms of having some of that data available. Okay. And Oliver, just going back to your environmental bunker, how can you help Flora out on that one in terms of how can investors find out a bit more about how their properties are doing, I guess, in in terms of environmental performance. Is there anything you've picked up on that might shed a bit more light on it all? I think um, it's a bit of a Pandora's box. Sometimes you get some resistance. I mean, I personally think you need to know how your building's performing to then improve on it. We don't use it as a stick to beat people because the buildings aren't performing well. We use it as a carrot to say, how do we actually help the building to improve? Because that's the objective. And linked to what Flora said, that some investors probably the ones that have done their research have worked out that some of their buildings need substantial investment to improve the, the efficiency. 
Um, and maybe that's they don't look at that because that's not the best investment. Maybe they just look at changing uh, culture within those buildings or what they're used for. And uh, there are other ways of attacking carbon. And that's, I think, the big thing for me is when we're speaking with government and, and when we're doing a lot of these roundtables, it's, it's about actually options that are available to be sustainable, improve your ESG, that ensure you right, make the right investment and people come along the journey without just saying no, it's this way, everyone's got to go that way, because I think that sometimes introduced resistance. Do you think um, the government knows so far is, I mean, they are being a bit softer on the residential side, aren't they, in terms of saying net zero ready from 2025, interpret that as you will. And then obviously in commercial real estate, you know, there's a really specific immediate deadline, you know, April 2027, properties must have an EPC rating of C and above. I think the government also climbed down on the rental side for residential as well, so that's been delayed and pushed out. There was once upon a time that we needed government solely to define the regulatory requirement and what needed to happen. And the core of sustainability, you know, the, the very core, which is originally from a guy called Brunswick, which was about, you know, the sustainability of your business. The cost of energy is so high that if you don't have an energy efficient building or industrial, you, you're not going to be able to afford to keep your business open. So the people that have effectively reduced energy usage will be able to sell their products, rent their hotel rooms, whatever, more cost effectively and get their products bought. So I always say this, we need to work with the government. We don't need them to set the reg. We're going to be sustainable because our investors are asking for it. It allows us to have a legacy and remain as a company long term. And if I'm really honest, if you're the true nature of, of where we're driven is we've got to be sustainable to help the next generation of people that are coming along. So there are so many reasons to be sustainable. I, I don't think I need just government. I think government are good to just set some structures around it now. Flora, would you agree with that, just in terms of how much government intervention is required on all of this? Yeah, I, I think that there has been that sort of the movement and, and whether it came from centrally or, or from that sort of stakeholder pressure, there is that sort of wide recognition that, of the direction of travel. And I think that's been highlighted by some of the, the climate patterns we've seen just this summer. I think I read earlier that it was the hottest August across the globe, obviously excluding the UK in, in that one. Um but it's all quite evident and it is very much coming from that stakeholder sort of investor pressure across the board. So there's the recognition and we want to move that way. And, and as Oliver said, there's sort of the cost saving implications. You have a more energy efficient building, you spend less on energy and then it sort of has those circular motions. But then there is the need, I think, to sort of push some people or, you know, that sort of carrot and stick approach uh, in terms of those sort of regulation. And and it's coming also through the, the disclosures. I mean, we already saw a huge uptake in sort of voluntary signups to the TCFD even before it became mandatory in the UK. So it's happening both ways, but I don't think it can harm. But the thing at the moment, which is a bit more of a sticking point. It's just the clarity around where that regulation is going. Because as you've said about that sort of EPCC by 2027, that's not in law yet. That hasn't been decided. There's been multiple consultations and they say there's going to be some sort of announcement potentially around the end of this year, but there isn't any clarity. You pointed to it in the residential sector. They said EPCC for all rental properties before the end of this decade or for all homes by 2035. And then maybe it was going to be 2030 and then maybe it's being pushed out again. It's just all, there's no clarity. And I think 
it doesn't matter what it is, but I think we just need more clarity on what it actually looks like and when it's coming in. So then you can make concrete decisions based on that. Oliver, can you tell us a bit more about how you're using the lab in Manchester to test the different ways to reduce heat? Obviously, we're coming out of another heat wave in the UK. And this is, of course, front and centre of people's minds. So in the future, what would you expect people to be using to reduce heat in their homes? The key to cooling, actually, is it's not about getting the inside of the house to 18 degrees Celsius when it's 40 degrees outside. Actually, it's just having the house cooler and below 28 because there is below 28, you're in a comfort zone for a period of time. So that, you know, there's quite a lot of science behind overheating. And I suppose we've got some of the leading experts looking at that and advising us on how do you design a house so you are essentially looking at cost effective ways. You're not trying to kind of include this really fancy aircon system. You are looking at ways to fix the problem before it is an issue, essentially. Yeah, I think the one thing I would say, though, which is innovative, is some of the air source heat pumps and uh, ventilation systems, you can have more natural cooling combined with them. So that is an interesting thing we are looking. So could you have more natural cooling come in so you're not using the carbon? Okay, more of a hybrid approach and hopefully a cheaper one. That probably leads quite nicely then onto Flora's research on EPCs and how likely they are to be replaced. So I think we've touched on this quite a lot during this episode. It's difficult right now to understand how energy efficient our homes are. Flora, are there better ways of doing this? Do you think that the EPCs will be phased out? I think it's well established that there's been a performance gap in buildings. I think Oliver's touched on it quite well in the fact that they don't always perform how they're supposed to. And that does come down to sort of human behaviour and, and how we, we utilise them. And, and EPCs have come under quite a bit of scrutiny recently because they do measure that potential rather than the actual. Something that we found in our survey is that we could potentially see a wider adoption of sort of neighbours rated buildings, which... Um, it, originated in Australia and is based on, um, so you have your sort of design for performance, so you're designing the building to perform well, but then there's a year's worth of data collection on how it actually performs, and then that's benchmarked against sort of industry standards and awarded one to six stars, with six being the highest. What we found in the survey was that 44% of those that we surveyed said they already own or are developing a neighbours rated building. Currently, there's fewer than 30 in the UK because it is relatively new, but we could see more systems like that coming to the fore. And it's actually something that was brought up in the Chris Skidmore review at the beginning of the year was more about those sort of net zero certificates for homes and buildings and how they're actually performing. So that could be the way we see the industry going. Would it give you a much clearer picture of how your home is performing? Yeah, so at the moment it, it's on commercial buildings, particularly in offices. But as I said, it's based on a year's worth of actual energy data. So you can see compared to other peers or industry benchmarks, how well it's performing. If it's five or six stars, it's in the sort of top tier, which can lead to a value premium, as our research showed that we did a few years ago, based on Sydney and Melbourne, where the uh, system has been well established. So it means you don't almost need that in use and a data piece when you're acquiring buildings because you already have the evidence in front of you. If it's in the top tier, it's five or six stars or, or, or whatever it may be, then you know it has the ability to perform well. Thank you for joining me, Flora and Oliver. Really insightful to hear both of your takes on what it will take to get the country to net zero and, of course, what role the built environment will play in all of that and particularly how much of a role the government should be playing in all of that and what approach the private sector is currently taking. So thanks once again. Thanks, Anna. Thanks, guys. Speak to you soon. Bye-bye.
For more analysis, you can subscribe to our research note. That goes out every Monday, Wednesday and Friday. You can see our show notes for more details on that. And please do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And thank you for listening to this week's Intelligence Talks. 